0: We're in the book of Jeremiah together. If you could go there with me, please. Actually, we just want to encourage you to read through this book. I want to, uh, again, encourage you to recognize who said it. God. To whom was it said? The nation of Judah, the southern tribes of partially Benjamin and Judah. And uh, what was the circumstances in which it was said? Israel has sinned against God. They have broken their God's covenant. They have, uh, in effect, said to God, we do not want you to serve over us. We want you somewhere around so we can collectively call you when when you're needed, but we do not want you to interfere in our everyday life. Now, the first six chapters that you read, and I, I might warn you that the book is not necessarily in chronological order, which adds to some confusion along the way. Uh, It's similar to the book of the Revelation where you have the the battle of Armageddon explained, and then the battle of Armageddon takes place a lot longer after that, some seven years later. So uh, when you're reading, recognize that Jeremiah will go back and say, remember I told you this, and then he picks up the story again a little later on. But the first six chapters are written under the reign of Josiah, King Josiah, And he was the king in this small southern tribe of Judah. Jerusalem, of course, was located in Judah. And what was going on is uh, Josiah was trying to revive the nation. Josiah was a, a young man of God. We thank God for King Josiah, but he was too little and too late. Apparently, the nation the southern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom has gone into the Assyrian captivity, and they have been scattered throughout the whole world. There is, they, it, they're non-existent any longer. So the northern kingdom uh, that used to be a, a help to the southern kingdom in some ways uh, was could no longer help them. They were all by themselves. They were trapped, if you would, in destruction. And so uh, Josiah comes on the scene, and he wants to lead the nation back. Remember, he's the one that restored temple worship. He's the one that tried to restore uh, all of the feast days, uh, but it was too little and too late. The people apparently apparently had been encapsulated in their mind, their thinking, and their flesh with Manasseh. Let's look at that, if we could please. Turn with me to uh, 2 Kings. We're coming back here now. 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. I might remind you, please, that uh, as Josiah is, uh, is trying to restore, he is following some pretty wicked people as part of the southern kingdom. Now, we're in 2 um, Kings chapter 21. This is Manasseh. He followed, of course, Hezekiah. And you'll recall who... Uh, who was the prophet in the days of Hezekiah. That was Isaiah the prophet, right? Also, be careful, because when you're reading the book of Jeremiah, you're going to find out that Ezekiel was still around, um, Zephaniah was still around, and Habakkuk was still around. So these guys were also prophesying during the days of uh, Jeremiah. Now, uh, we do not read anything about these men because, I believe, they were either killed or taken captive in the first uh, removal, in the first dispersion. Remember, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and he took all the young men, along with it was Daniel, and he slaughtered a bunch of people. So perhaps Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Zephaniah all were taken in the first captivity or maybe They were killed. We do not know that at all because they seem to go off the pages of history. But we're in 2 Kings chapter 21. Notice, please, what happens here in verse, uh, verse 1. And Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, so southern kingdom. Always keep in mind, Judah, Jerusalem, southern kingdom. Verse 2, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the nations, "...whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal, and made an idol, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, for which the Lord, uh, Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name." And he built altars uh, uh, for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So can you you imagine that? He went up into the temple, Solomon's temple, the glory of Solomon's temple, and he raised up altars unto pagan deities. I think about that every once in a while. I do not ponder it too far because of the day we live in and the dispensation we're in. But as I would travel way up north, for example, into Vermont, where I used to hunt quite frequently, I would pass church after church after church after church, dead churches, nothing in them anymore. What were they? They were hangouts out for hippies or bar rooms or everything else. And I thought, here's a place that used to represent the king of kings and lord of lords, and it's filled with iniquity. It just it bothered me some. Well, this, that is on a minuscule plane compared to what happened here. In the very house of the Lord, the place that he said he had chosen to place his name, Manasseh was sacrificing pigs and children and everything else you can imagine. And the den of iniquity in the temple of the living God. And a little later on, we're going to see Israel's going to say, Well, this this Judah, this is the house of the Lord. Uh, God said, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. So let's go on just for a minute, please. Verse 6, And he made his sons to pass through the fire and observe times. Now don't overlook that. That was sacrifice of his own children. Some uh, illegitimate children for sure, some legitimate Uh, all his children nonetheless, and he uh, he sacrificed some of them. He observed times and used enchantments and, and dealt with mediums and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He set up carved images and idols that he had made in the house of which the Lord said unto David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Imagine that. And they're desecrating the whole place. Verse uh, 8. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearken not and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Notice, Manasseh seduced them. What did he do? Well, we don't know exactly. He made it pleasurable. He made it fun. He made it titillating. He made it rewarding to be involved in total, total wickedness. It felt good, so they did it. It felt good. Uh, There was no... King, worthy king in Jerusalem. So the people did that which was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they felt like it. And so we have Manasseh. Now you can follow along through the historical pattern here. But notice the next one, that, the third one to come along. This is Josiah. And Josiah is a, for all purposes a godly king. But the people were so entrenched in wickedness that what Josiah said didn't matter. And I want you to see that in chapter uh, 23 now, please. Chapter 23. This is King Josiah. Now, even though he's a godly king, a good man, I mean, he's not a perfect man. There is no perfect man. But he's reopening the temple. He's destroying the altars. He's trying to get these people to move back into a relationship and a fellowship with God. He fears the word of God. You know what's interesting, and uh, just as a side note here, did they have the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is no. No. He was with them, John chapter 14, but he was not in them because they were Old Testament people. The Holy Spirit was with them and he was among them, but he was not in them. But please understand, they could keep the Word of God, right? They could still keep the word of God, couldn't they? They could do what God wanted. They could keep the Old Testament law. Now, even if they didn't keep it with their whole heart, they could still keep it, couldn't they? And God said, I want you to keep my word. But they did not. They would not. Why? They were filled with wickedness. Wickedness was better than doing the right thing. So look, if you would, at chapter 23 and verse 21. And the king, this would be Josiah, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of his covenant. So we want you to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Verse 21. Surely there was not held such a Passover from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year, the king Josiah... In which the Passover was held in, in the Lord, in uh, to, held to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, the mediums and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, did Josiah put away, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And like him, there was no king before him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses neither after him arose any like unto him so this guy is is spot on is he not i mean god said so however verse 26 notwithstanding the lord turned not the fierceness of his great wrath which his anger was kindled against judah the southern kingdom Uh, for all of the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and so forth. So remember, though Josiah turned to the Lord, the people did not they were still following the ways of Manasseh. They were wicked people. It's very possible to have a very good leader and very wicked followers. It's also possible to have very good followers and a wicked leader. But eventually, there's going to be a merger, right? Eventually, there's going to be a merger. Okay, so having that in mind, now turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Back to Jeremiah chapter 1 we saw that his father was Hilkiah, and he prophesied in the days of Josiah all the way down to Zedekiah, and we took some time to look at that, just a little bit of time to look at that. So there's about a 40 to 50-year span there where this guy is giving the word of God. Even after the final destruction of Jerusalem, he had a choice whether to stay or not, and he chose to stay. So at this present point, at this time in history, what's happening is the Assyrian nation. Now, I have, uh, I have one little projection, if I can show you, please. <clears throat> I know some of you uh, think of this as strange, but just let it be strange for a little while if you could, okay? Uh, this, up in here, this was the Assyrian, up in this way. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians in this area and Egypt over here. Right in the middle, of course, is Jerusalem. Right in the middle. It's called the navel of the world because of its situation. But Jerusalem has a problem, particularly Judea has a problem, and the reason they do is because there's a battle going on, and there's two kingdoms that are volleying for power. Babylon, the Chaldean Empire, is fighting for power against Egypt. Egypt is in power right now. As a matter of fact, they're more powerful than Babylon, than the Chaldeans. And what's happening is Judah is paying ransom money to Egypt. They're paying paying off the Egyptians to just plain leave them alone. But what's going to happen now is the Babylonians are rising in power, and Israel is going to be right in the middle of two tremendous nations battling against one another, and Israel's going to be in the middle of this, and they're afraid whoever takes over, they'll be the worst person, and if they take over, we need to join the other side so that we're not held in complete captivity. So, as we're going through this, recognize what's going on now. He's been commissioned by the Lord. He said, I'm too young. God said, don't say you're too young. I'm telling you to go. I chose you out. I knew you before you were in the womb. I know what I'm going to do, and you just follow what I'm going to do. And he said in verse 10, and you're familiar with this, I have set thee this day over the nations and over kingdoms. And there are four negative things, but there are two positive things. Recognize, he said, I have set thee, this day over the nations, over kingdoms, to, to do what? to root up, to pull down, to destroy and to throw down. First there has to be destruction then there'll be a rebuilding. Uh, you and I are familiar with this I'm sure. Don't you wonder why? Why in the world do not our, doesn't our government use some of these old buildings that are around? Why don't they do that? Why do they Tear it down and build a new building. Well, usually because the old building is corrupt. And it would actually cost more money to fix the old building, to bring it up to cold, than to build a new one. It's hard to believe that, but it's absolutely true. And so, with this nation of Judah, God's not saying, I'm going to restore the nation. What he's going to say is, I'm going to tear it down and rebuild it. I'm going to tear it right down and rebuild it. I'm going to pull up the old plant, and I'm going to plant the new one. So God's going to do something here. But notice that first come the negative things, and then come the positive things. He says, and and I have, notice, I have set thee this day. God did it. It's not, he's deciding, I'm going to clean up this mess. Remember, Moses started to do that himself when he was in Egypt. God said, I want you to to clear out Egypt. Okay, Moses killed an Egyptian. No, no, that's not my plan. (laughs) Not one at a time. I'm going to get a whole bunch at once. So Moses decided to take it on himself, and God set him in the desert for a while. You need to learn a few things here. And then God brought him back, of course, and now he's ready to move the nation of Israel out. But Jeremiah didn't decide this for himself. God said, I have set thee over. And I remind you, of course, and we know this uh, very well together, that in the book of Matthew, all authority has been given me, given you, Uh, in heaven and in earth, because I'm in charge, God says. So you and I, we reign under the king. Jeremiah reigned under the king, and he had some things to do. And what things were there that he had to do? Well, first of all, the Lord says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, again, I'm reading from a King James Bible. He said, And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Now, I believe the, uh, the um, ESV, English Standard Version, says a branch. And that's a good translation. It is branch, but it's singular. It's not I see an almond tree. I see a branch of an almond tree. So this is a detached branch. It's not, it's not part of the tree any longer, which means what? It's dead. It's dead or it's dying. There can be no life in it. Now, what in the world is this first vision? Well, there's a couple of things about this vision I'd like us to see. First of all, the almond tree is uh, the first of the trees to blossom, kind of like our dogwood trees. I love it in the springtime when you're driving down the road and you see a dogwood tree because it begins with its flowers, and it's really the first tree that really gets flowers on it. And uh, it's exciting to see because you know spring is at hand. Well, the almond tree is like that in Jerusalem, it usually usually begins in early January uh, you know, during some moderate weather, and it, it shows forth that spring is really starting to come. Of course, the seasons are a little bit earlier in the land of Israel. But it shows the people that the seasons are starting to come. The warm weather is really starting to come, the planting times. He said, I see an almond tree, the rod of an almond tree or a branch of an almond tree. Now, what what in the world does this almond tree mean? Well, being the first of uh, the um, being the first to come, God is is relating to them that uh, I'm the time is getting near. The time of what? The time of judgment. It's getting near. It's getting close, and that is kind of borne out uh, on a on a few passages we'll see in just a moment. But uh, We read, as New Testament Christians, we read about that in the book of 2 Peter. For example, we're talking about uh, the judgment of God. In our day, even in our dispensation, we read this. For their condemnation from long ago is not idle. It's not idle. It's, in fact, very near. And that can happen at any moment, can it not? God's condemnation. Why is God not doing, why is God not judging right away? And Jeremiah could ask that. As a matter of fact, one of his predecessors, Habakkuk, asked that, didn't he? He said, God, how can these people, being so wicked, and you're not doing anything to them, if you look at the book of Habakkuk? And then God said, I'm going to. I'm bringing in Nebuchadnezzar. He says, how can you do that? (laughs) How can you bring such a wicked guy to chasten your people Israel? So it's coming. It's coming quick. But an almond tree is also a sign of authority. It's a symbol, a symbolic of authority. I think there's no better case to see that but in the book of Numbers. If you'd go there with me, please, in Numbers chapter 16. It's a symbol of authority, an, uh, the branch of an almond tree. Now, uh, recognize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 16. Recognize that... Uh, God could have chosen any stick he wanted, right? I mean, any branch from any tree he wanted. It just so happens he chose this almond branch as part of his, to show his authority. And we see that in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. If you'd go with me, please, in verse 1. You know this incident very, very well. Korah decides that he wants to be a priest. He decides that he should be Uh, in charge. Who does this Moses think he is? Who does Aaron think he is? Uh, I'm against Aaron. I'm against Moses. I'm against the whole thing. I know better. I could take over. I want to be in charge. And you see that often, do you not? People who uh, are ignorant, uh, they're sinful, they're lustful, and they think they can do something better than everyone else. And so they want to take over. They want to be in charge. The only problem is God said, I don't want you in charge. You're not going to be in charge. So they challenge Moses and they challenge Aaron. And the challenge is met by the Lord, isn't he? The Lord said, uh, okay, I'm going to decide who is going to be in charge and who isn't. So Korah and all his people stood um, outside of their tents, and they want to hear from the Lord. The Lord said, okay, here you go. You're listening closely. Ground opens up they all fall in, ground closes up, end of case. That's the end of it. Now, I said that rather quickly, and, uh, but you recognize that's God's sovereign judgment. Okay, but they still have a problem. Why? Because Korah has spread. Korah has spread. And how has he spread? In his wickedness, his wickedness. And you often find that there are people who go along with someone who is, uh, is a mouth Just a mouthpiece, and they go along with them. Now, they don't necessarily change their mind, but they're still still not 100% behind the leadership. They've listened to a different voice. And now that voice is gone, but there's still people. So God says, I have something I need to do. Okay, now we're in chapter 17. Now, you realize I skipped through that very quickly, right? And forgive me for whatever I've left out. But pick it up in chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take every one of them a rod, according to the house of their fathers, of all their princesses, according to the house of their fathers, twelve rods, and write every man his name upon his rod, so that it take branches. Every, the head of every tribe was to take a branch and write their name on it. Now, I'll suggest to you that this was an almond branch, and you'll see that in just a moment. But it was an almond branch, and they all had to write their names on it. And these were dead branches, if you would. These were branches that didn't have life in them or were cut off from the life of the vine or the the tree itself. Now, what happened? Well, I want you to notice and pick it up in verse 3. And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, uh, for the one rod shall be for the head of the house of the fathers. And thou shalt lay them in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I meet with you. So he's to bring these rods, all 12 of these rods, into the tabernacle. And, but not only, only in the inner tabernacle, but the Holy of Holies in before the, uh, what we know to be the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's going to be important for us later on, but notice what happens. Verse 6, and Moses spoke unto the children of Israel, every one of their princes. He gave them rod apiece, for each prince had one according to their father's houses, even twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of the witness. And it came to pass, on the next day Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold... Notice, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded fruit. So here's this dead stick, and Moses runs in, and there's the other 11, and here's this one. It has blossoms on it, but not only blossoms, it has leaves, and even further than that, it has fruit on the things. There's almonds on this rod. And what's God showing? He's the one. It's his authority. He's the one that's going to lead this this nation. And that was Aaron. Now, you don't need to turn there, but if you look in the book of Hebrews and a little further on in uh, chapter 17, you find that they placed that rod inside of the Holy of Holies. They placed it inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And Hebrews tells us that. So one day, I believe you and I are going to see that thing. Won't that be great? I can't wait to see that. One day, we'll get an opportunity to see that very rod. And I think it still has almonds on it. And for you nutty people, you can't pick any of it, okay? You just can't touch it, you know. But um, recognize this is a sign of authority. Not only was it the sign of an early coming, the first of all, plants to blossom, but it's a sign of authority. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to do something. Okay, turn back with me now if you would please to the book of Jeremiah once again. Back to the book of Jeremiah chapter 1. So the first thing he sees is this almond branch and God's saying pick it up please in verse uh, 12. Then said the Lord unto me thou hast well seen for I will hasten my word to perform it. See, I'm I'm coming quick. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly in judgment, essentially. Now, in verse 13, And the Lord of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and its face is toward the north. Now, literally, its face is coming from the north, literally toward the south. This face is... The face of this boiling pot, now you, you recognize, of course, what a boiling pot is. I, I, one time, I used to be, uh, as a kid, I was still in high school, but I was the assistant to the cook at a nursing home, and it happened to be a 400-person um, nursing home. It was the Duval Manor in Dracut, Massachusetts. And I would get on the bus from school and go there, and I was the assistant to the cook. It was the greatest job I ever had, I'm telling you. But one of my responsibilities in this job was to sanitize the whole kitchen at the end of the day. And we used to put a big pot of water up there and and get it boiling, and then we put some bleach and things in, in the cleaning solution to do the floor. Probably kill you dead now, but we—that's what we used to do. And uh, we get this thing boiling, and where the water was spraying out all over the place. A big, and I asked a young guy to help me, and he was a weenie of a person. Uh, he picked up his end and he burnt this thing, Ow! And he let it go, and this boiling pot fell from the stove, and it ran down my leg. Oh, oh! And I remember uh, the the. The cook's saying, we got to get you cooled off. And they put ice packs on me, and I had to go to the doctors and everything. But a boiling pot. You get the picture of something frothing out. This is something just frothing out. And what is it? It's toward the north. It's coming from the north. It's boiling this way. Now, remember, who's in charge of the world? It's Egypt. It's, it, it's not Babylon. It's Egypt. Babylon's on the way up. But it's Egypt that's the problem. And God's letting him know something's coming. But notice he says, out of the north, in verse 15. For lo, I will call all of the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord, and they shall come. And they shall set everyone his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. So they're coming from the north. But what I want you to notice up here is Babylon is, in fact, not north of Jerusalem. It's due east of Jerusalem, is it not? It's due east of Jerusalem. Now, why did God say the north? Well, he's a little mistaken in his uh, directions, perhaps. Well, maybe it's a scribe wrote this down. No, God knew exactly what was going to go on, in that no one, no army crossed the Arabian desert. No army would cross the Arabian Desert, and the reason they did is it took too much effort, too much water, too many animals, and they'd lose half of them on the way over. The Arabian Desert would kill them. You just couldn't make it. So everyone would go up this way, up by the Euphrates River, around what we know to be the Fertile Crescent, and enter here, from the north down to invade the nation of Israel. But what I want you to see most of all, and of course that was what came to pass, but what I want you to see is God said, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. God's going to call them. God's going to call them. Down to judge his people. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? It really is. God's going to call them against his people. Judah. Judah. Jerusalem, against this wayward people. Now we have several examples of that in the Scriptures. I won't have you turn to them, but I put a few down myself. Well, let me have you turn to this one, please. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, remember I told you Ezekiel was alive in Jeremiah's time. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, chapter 38. Chapter 38. Ezekiel, of course, is a wonderful, wonderful book talking about judgment, but also talking about restoration. Now, we're going to see Jeremiah talks about judgment, but he also talks about restoration. The the situation we have in in, uh, Jeremiah is, Jeremiah is talking about restoration for the nation of Israel in the latter times, in the last days, the new covenant. And you see that in chapter 31. Now, Ezekiel talks about future restoration of the nation in what we know to be the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The thousand-year millennial kingdom. But Ezekiel is talking about a situation that's going to take place in the Great Tribulation period. And this is just before the very midpoint of the Great Tribulation period. So three and a half years into the Tribulation, something's going to happen. And I want you to see that in Ezekiel chapter 38. Look at Verse 1 with me, please. And the word of the Lord came unto me, unto Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now this all has to do with the last days, and you can see that as you look at the whole text of 38. I won't bring you through it. Uh, Look at chapter 8 and verse uh, 38, verse 8. And after many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years, in the latter years. And you can look through and see in the last days, in the latter years. This is talking about the latter years of the nation of Israel as we know it. So against uh, Gog from Magog, Meshach and Tubal. Now, that is this area up in here that we know to be Russia today. We know to be Russia today. It's up in there in the commonwealth of Russian or Soviet-type nations, and those nations, in the last half, in the first half of the Great Tribulation period, are going to attack the nation of Israel, and they're going to attack it to gain the land, first of all, but to gain warm water seaports, to gain potassium potash, which is needed to grow crops, all of that, they're going to attack the nation of Israel. But what I want you to notice is God says this in verse 3, and he said, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now what does God have against them? No one kills the saints and gets away with it. No one kills the saints and gets away with it. All the wickedness that communism has done to the saints of God and their persecutions of them, they're wholesale slaughters of them. It's all going to come to pass right here. God said, I have something for you. I'm against you. And he says, and I will turn thee back, and I will put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, and all those clothed with, with armor. God said, I am going to pull you down against my people Israel. I'm pulling you. Hooks in the jaw, jaws was an Assyrian tradition where they would actually put a wire, a type of a wire or a rope through a guy's jaws, and it would be attached to another rope, and wherever you pull that rope, that's where that fellow's going. Do you ever see a, um, a, um, a giant beast, uh, a bull, uh, an oxen? Do you ever see them? They have a ring in the thing's nose, and all they have is a little chain and if this oxen gets out of sorts, they just twist the chain a little bit. It put that thing right on its knees. God says, I have hooks in your jaws, and I'm bringing you against my people, Israel. But what I want you to notice is God isn't making them do evil. They're doing evil. Pick it up, if you could, please, in, um, in verse um, 11. And notice. Verse 11, and thou shalt say, this is what these people are going to be saying, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to those who are at rest, who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And what are they going to do? They're going to take a spoil and take a prey and turn... Uh, thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. So they're going to come down and attack the nation of Israel. But why? They want to pray or a spoil. And God said he's going to destroy them in the very mountains of Lebanon. But what I want you to notice is God can actually steer or use evil to accomplish his will. He can steer or use evil. Now, I, we won't get into it, but you recall, of course, uh, the example in 2 Kings uh, under Micaiah, the prophet, when Ahab wants to know, uh, Jehoshaphat's asking, uh, should we go up and fight at Ramoth Gilead? Should we go up? And Micaiah says, sure, go up. Go up. Just in, uh, Jehoshaphat says, wait a minute, I can tell sarcasm when I hear it. Something's wrong. I want to know of a truth from you. And you make sure you tell him, Ahab, should we go up and fight? And he said, I'm going to tell you what I saw. I had a vision. I saw a vision. And I saw the angels, sons of God, in heaven. And one was saying this and one was saying that about sending Ahab to Ramoth Gilead. And then what happened? A lying angel. This would be a fallen angel who went into the presence of God. A lying angel said, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophet. And what did God say? That will persuade him. That'll get him. And what happened? He went up to Ramoth Gilead and was killed there. God, now I'll also remind you about a Judas Iscariot. God can steer evil to accomplish his will. And that's exactly what he's doing with the king of Babylon. He's going to steer Israel. We're going to see in just a little bit. He called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Now, does that mean Nebuchadnezzar was a nice guy? no. Did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? I personally don't think so. (laughs) Some do, and that's fine. Uh, I think he was a wicked man, and he died in his wickedness, and he has a place right now in eternal damnation, my opinion. But recognize, if you would, recognize that God said, I will, verse 15, for lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms. God's going to take evil and steer it, To accomplish his will. He does not promote the evil. He is not in favor of the evil and the evil will be judged, but he's going to use the evil to accomplish his will. And so he's calling uh, these people down. Now what's going to happen? Well, I also want you to recognize that they're going to come and they're going to do devastating damage and we'll see this together. But there's a passage of Scripture that I want you to see, because we're out of time now, and we'll pick it up the next time we're together. Pick it up, if you would, please, in um, verse 9, chapter 2 and verse 9. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. So God's going to still, he's given them time. He's given Judah time through, of course, his prophet. He says, for uh, for the For the pass over the coast of Kittim, and see, and send uh, into Kedah, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. What have they done? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So my people have done that which is wicked in my sight. My people have done that which is terrible in my sight. They've forsaken me, and yet yet God has a plan for them. We're in chapter 5 now, please. Chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. He's coming for sure he's coming. And remember, he warns Jeremiah about it. He's coming. It's too late for these people. The summer has ended. The harvest is, is in, and we're not saved. They're coming. They're coming. But notice what God says in chapter 5 and verse 10. Go up upon her walls and destroy. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar here about Judea. Go up upon her walls and destroy. But make not a full end. See that? You can destroy that people, but you can't wipe them all completely. I have a plan for this people. And so when you start reading the New Testament and you start reading about a remnant in Israel, that's what that's talking about right there. Talking about a remnant. You cannot make a full end. Who wanted to make a full end of the Jews? You name it. Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, all wanting to eradicate Jewish blood from the earth, and they could not. Nebuchadnezzar would be one as well. They could not. Why could they not? Because God said, you cannot make a full end. He was withholding complete destruction. Why? Because he has a plan. Paul said, I'm part of that remnant. Huh? So when you get into the book of Romans and you read chapter 11 for example and it says turn with me to Romans 11 and I'll close with this one please Romans chapter 11 When you start reading some of these passages of scripture and you wonder, "Well, what in the world is that talking about?" Well, you're going to see that God still has his Jewish people in mind. Now, why? Because they're wonderful? No, they're rotten. They're not wonderful. God saved you because you were nice? No, 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 because he's merciful and because he always keeps his word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, I did, and I'm wonderful. No, you weren't. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Say, well, I'm wonderful now. Really? Let me ask your wife about that or your husband. I had to add that in, didn't I? Sorry about that. Okay, now we're in Romans chapter 11. Let's pick it up, please, in verse 26. What God's talking about now in verse 25, Romans 11:25, 25. For I would, brethren, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, in part, is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That's us. That's you and I, born-again Gentiles, the scum of the earth, we were called dogs by the nation of Israel, and here we are. We're saved, born again, gloriously saved. And what happened to the Jews? Well, they're all going to hell. They're, they're, God doesn't like them anymore. I belong to a religion that thought that, that uh, Israel was wiped out because they failed, and God saved us gloriously because we're so good. No, no. What's going to happen to the nation of Israel? Verse 26. Verse 26. And so all Israel shall, be, uh, well, and all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Why? Because he made a promise to their fathers, and he keeps his covenant, keeps his contract. So when you start reading in the New Testament about this people recognize what's at hand I wish I was a Jew not me not me look what they went through now we're all sons of Abraham by faith so we have a little Jewish running through us right not really we're Gentiles but recognize God had a purpose Nebuchadnezzar I'm calling you you're gonna destroy this people but you cannot make a full end of them why I promise their fathers I made a covenant. And though they didn't keep their end of the contract, I keep mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, as we look at this book, we look in wonder about your ways. We know the whole Bible is about you. It's about you and your purposes. And Father, we can't change it. We can't add to it. We don't want to subtract from it, but we we confess, Father, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. You have your perfect will and your perfect way, and we are but yet to submit to that. So, Father, even when we come through the generations and through the times and past the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to the day we live in, your word is still truth. You still keep your word. And we're still obligated to be doers of that word by and through the Spirit of the living God. You tell us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And the only way that can happen is if we're students of the word, if we study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thank you, Father. For such a day as this, we think of this Memorial Day where we think of our soldiers, men and women, our sailors, uh, all of our armed forces who have uh, given even unto the final death uh, for our country. We thank you for that. Father, we as Christians are yet concerned about our country. We look at it as a nation that has gone astray, very much like Judah. And we know, Father, there could come a day, even in our day, in which you will allow it to fall. But we know, Father, you will never fail us, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But, Father, we would pray, as Paul instructed Timothy, that we would pray that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, until you come and take us home so father we thank you for this time in the word we pray as we remember our fallen heroes and those men and women who presently serve that we would first of all fix our mind upon you and your purposes we pray in jesus name amen